Greetings from Effort of Christian Fellowship. It's good to be here with you this morning. I've been blessed and encouraged so far in the word and in testimony. Uh, Bill and Diane, your testimony really spoke to me, and it was a blessing to hear that, what God has done in your life. And I was just thinking how when God puts his finger on our life, no matter where we are, there's so many parallels. We might come from very different backgrounds, but the things that happen in our hearts and the things we learn and the consequences because of the steps we take, there's so many parallels. And uh, I was just very blessed with that. Well, last night, yesterday evening, or maybe this morning, we turned our clocks forward by an hour. And it used to be that I uh, had a hard time remembering, what do you do in the spring? Turn it forward or turn it back? What about the fall? Just couldn't keep it straight. And um, my older brother, when he got married, their first change of time after they were married, they didn't really talk about who was going to change the clock. So the, the one went and changed it, not saying anything about it. And then the other one went and changed it as well. And, uh, well, they showed up at church and just nothing seemed quite right. And I forget if they were late or if they were early, but something was off. So it's good to communicate uh, in those things. But then uh, somebody told me, spring forward, fall back. That, that makes sense. That's easy to remember. Then I was thinking, well, that lines up with our Christian life. You spring forward and then there's life. We, we expect spring to come real soon and there's already signs of it. And we spring forward in time and before we know it, things green up and, and there's throughout the summer there's a harvest and abundant fruit. And in the fall we fall back. If we fall back on our Christian life and just get slack and become like a sloth, there's deadness, like winter. So, interesting to think about that parallel. I feel humbled to be before you this morning and yet honored. And I, I would like to start in with a word of prayer. If you might just rise again to your feet, those of you that can, and let's pray. Lord God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we bless your name this morning. Thank you for your working in our hearts and lives throughout our life, throughout this past week, even this morning. We've had many things to ponder and to be blessed in. I pray that all of us would be not forgetful hearers, but doers of the work, doers of the word. Would you minister yet further to us? Those things that you've laid on my heart, would you take them, make it a blessing, make it encouragement, give clarity of heart and mind. Bless the church here at Oasis Christian Fellowship. Thank you for preserving them. 
Thank you for their testimony. Thank you for the blessing they've been to the community and neighboring churches. And I pray you'd take them from this day and help them to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May there be a oneness in Christ. May there be a light, a testimony. Just take this next hour. Speak to us, Lord. You are on the throne. You are the great I am. You are the holder of truth. You are the essence of truth. You are truth. May we quiet ourselves before you and learn of you. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to you but by him. Thank you for the cleansing blood. Thank you for deliverance from sin into a new life. Pray you'd strengthen and encourage all the believers here this morning and those that hear my voice that are not yet believers, that they would be touched and drawn, come closer to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What I would like to speak about this morning will make a big difference in my life and in your life where we find ourselves in it, whether it's going to be for good or bad. Speaking of difference, there's a local bank that has this slogan, you'll feel the difference. You've probably all seen that. Now, when they say that, they assume a couple of things. They assume that you'd like to feel the difference that you'd like to feel a difference. And they assume that if there's a difference, you'll be happy with it. Why is it that way? And they they assume accurately, I believe. Often when we say, I could just feel a difference. We often use it positively. Like, Like difference is good. Difference means it's better. And some of that might be we tend to be discontent as people where we're constantly looking for something different. And on the other hand, it might be living in this world with its disappointments and its hardships and difficulties that we all yearn for something different. Proverbs 29:18 where there is no vision the people perish. It makes a great difference in our life whether we just meander through life or whether we have a vision. Now we all find ourselves in times and places circumstances where we need a vision. We need goals. We need something to carry us through. When there's difficulty, when there's when there's uh, hurts, when there's tiredness, when there's uh, discouragement, we need something greater than just the need of the hour and the perspective of the hour to carry us through. 
I'm speaking of goals this morning, and the title is Godly Goals Give Grace. A definition of grace, I love this one definition I found uh, on dictionary.com. Might have not been there, it was, it was somewhere else, but it was, a, it was in the uh, concordance of some sort. The merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. Now that's quite a lot to think about. I might have to read that again just to help us to follow along. The definition of grace. We tend to maybe not think of grace as as deep and as far-reaching and precious as we should. We hear the term cheap grace sometimes. Well, this is true grace. Again, the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. And we heard in the testimony of grace at work in the brother and sister's lives. Our main reading in scripture will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I invite you to turn there with me if you would. Ecclesiastes 7, and I'll read from verse 1 to 10. Seven times in these verses, we'll have the words, better than. Seven things that are better than the other thing. And then the eighth one is found in verse 10, where it says we shouldn't say, why were the former days better than these? That's a better than that we shouldn't be looking at or shouldn't be using. That was pretty easy. Find ourselves sitting around, oh, thinking about those good old days. Now we tend to, in the difficult times that we go through later on in life, we tend to look back and remember the good. And considering the present time, we tend to think about the difficulty. So, it's very easy to think about the good old days, thinking those were better than these. But it says it's not asked of wisdom. So let's read. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing 
than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Now there may be some verses here that really don't seem to fit too well most of the time. And I'd like to use them as they fit. And I think of scripture many times and compare it to a jigsaw puzzle. When you take a jigsaw puzzle, it's very important that right from the start you put every piece in its place. And as soon as you you start cheating a little and you take a piece that almost looks right and it almost fits, yeah, you can get it in and you push it in there. Then you get another piece and you push it in somewhere and it doesn't look quite right. After a while, things are pretty messed up and there's not a there's not a nice picture the way it should have been if everything was put together just right. And the more you do that, the more pieces you have left over that just don't fit anywhere. If we misapply scripture, there comes a time when there's so many scriptures that just don't fit anywhere and there's and the picture of our life is anything but beautiful. But uh, I broke it down in three three things, three goals that we can have, three goals that we should have. The goal of a good name, and that's found in verse 1. The goal of knowing truth, and the goal of final victory. Proverbs 22.1 a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. So should we go through life and try to make up ourselves a good name? Is that uh, what God is asking of us here? Then there's others. There's some that might take that approach. And there's others that they really don't seem to be concerned about making themselves a good name. I've... I was thinking about a sad story from the 1800s. There was a Amish community in Buffalo Valley, Pennsylvania. A certain girl was looking for a certain reputation. She was infatuated with the idea of romance and wrote herself a love letter and then spread the story of this coming from such and such a person. And what followed thereafter was one of those horrible stories of false accusation and reputations ruined and bitterness, anger, loss of trust, disillusioned people, and in the end, a torn apart community. Many years later, the truth came out, but the damage was done. She tried to make herself a reputation, and it was far, far from successful. Now consider the example of Christ. Philippians 2.7, he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of his servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus testified that he came to do the will of the Father, 
And he was always doing that which pleaseth the Father. So he was first and foremost, and we might say only, looking to have a good name with the Father. And Christ was much mistreated, much defamed. False accusations came against him. But he always had that standard of pleasing the Father. And that's what really mattered to him. He died an awful death, a shameful death. Looked like the death of a transgressor, the death of a wicked man. But God interceded. God raised him back from the dead. And today, he sits on the right hand of the Father. And there's no name above the name of Christ. There's no better name than the name of Christ. No sweeter name on earth. And the only, only way for us to have a good name is to follow the example of Christ. Be willing to take any reproach. Be willing to take any kind of a bad name while seeking to do the Father's will and pleasing Him only. You know, who we really are has a way of coming out. Just as it really came out to those that want to know the truth, who Christ is. And just as it really came out about this girl that wrote the letter that I mentioned, who we really are ends up coming out in the end. We speak of things coming through the grapevine as they just they just come in a mysterious way. We, we find things out that people didn't expect we'd find out. It came through the grapevine. Solomon spoke of birds of the air taking secrets. And we use that sometimes. A little birdie told me. Things have a way of coming around. It works both good way, both ways, good and bad. Daniel 2.22 He, God, revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. Now, speaking of a good name, we use name in two different ways. First, we start with a name, and then... Okay, baby gets born, and the parents give the baby a name. And as this child grows up, he forms characteristics, and his life takes shape. And after a while, that name has a good connotation, or maybe a not-so-good connotation, depending on the life lived. The other way we use name is We make a reputation, and uh, and we have a name of this or a name of that. We can have a name of being Christ-like, a name of being unselfish, or we can have a name of always looking out for ourselves, always taking care of number one, as they say. I find the story of Elijah... And his name, very inspiring. We don't know much about Elijah's parents. 
Don't know if we know anything about them. If you read through First Kings chapter 17, Elijah just, all of a sudden he's on the scene. And a few chapters later, he's off the scene again. Off, whipped away in a fiery chariot. But the name of Elijah, the meaning behind it, I think, speaks of who his parents were. The battle in his day was against, was largely against the worship of Baal. These parents had a little son, and they were burdened with the mixture of religion, with the false religion coming in, with uh, people worshiping Baal, and attaching the name of Baal to God rather than Jehovah. God had shown himself as being Jehovah and not as being Baal. And there was there was a mixture of religion. And these parents had a burden for this. And they named their son Elijah, meaning God is Jehovah. And this little boy grows up. And every time they call for Elijah, they're saying, God is Jehovah. Come here. God is Jehovah. Do this, do that. And he grows up with this. And you know who the prophet Elijah was and what his mission was, bringing worship back to Jehovah, away from Baal. So names have power. I worked with a young man some years back, and um, it became evident very soon that this young man had some Difficulties in life, difficulties relating with his father, and there was uh, some needs there. And well, one day his father came over to speak to me and and uh, kind of apologized for his son's behavior. And he made the comment that the day wisdom got passed out, his son was standing behind the door, and that's kind of the way he treated his son. And I just I felt bad for. The young man, if, if that's the name I have, maybe I made it. Maybe I deserve it. But if that's the name I have with my father, it's going to be pretty easy to just live it out. So, it goes two ways. One's reputation is a valuable thing. We must be willing to do what is right regardless of the reputation we'll have up front. But like I said, who we are really does come out. Not to damage others' reputation is a very wrong thing. Slander is very hurtful, very wrong. The devil himself has the name of being the accuser of the brethren. So we want to be very careful to not jump into the devil's business and be accusing, falsely accusing the brethren. Now, that's not to say that false prophets and false teachers must be, ex- must be exposed. I'm, I'm uh, going to make that clear that we need to be careful to not, when people expose those false doctrines and false teachings and, and uh, bad trends, to not label that speaker as being an accuser of the brethren 
or as being a slanderer. False doctrine does need to be openly preached against. 1 Corinthians 14.12 Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Again in verse 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. That's where our focus needs to be. That's where we need to be in the, whether we expose things or we don't, however we speak to people and of people, that it might be done to the building of the true church. That was number one. The goal of number two is the goal of knowing truth. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? How many of us live day after day thinking of ourselves as being in a desperate desperate situation? The heart of man is desperately wicked. That means everyone. When we come on the scene and we're living in the flesh... And we go after the flesh. And those things that we sow grow up and increase and bear fruit. The heart is desperately wicked. There needs to be truth brought in and applied. Don't listen to your heart. There's other things that need to be listened to. There's other standards that need to be lifted up. Not the heart. For sure not the heart. The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful. And even when it seems like it's pretty well been taken care of, it can still be so deceitful when we just sit around and look into our own heart and feel pretty good about ourselves. We need to look to Christ. Look to the standard of what's true and what's right. My mind was going back this morning, listening to the testimony, going back right about nine years, nine years, a couple months ago. I found myself in a life where I just really realized that I wasn't where I needed to be. I had I had uh, all sorts of things in my life that just weren't working out well, and and I. Um, I wasn't finding finding fulfillment in the things that I thought I should have been and trying this, trying that to fill in that void in life. And as I was reading books, reading the scripture and trying to make sense of everything, trying to undo that jigsaw puzzle that just wasn't coming together. The picture wasn't looking nice. So many pieces that didn't fit. And in the setting that I was in, believing that it was very wrong to leave that, and at the same time, feeling like there's just so many things God is teaching me and I can't, I can't walk in those things without a separation happening here or without great contention. It just seemed like I was in a, between a rock and a hard spot finally got to the place that 
I realized I was in a desperate situation and something had to give. Not knowing which way to turn, I just cried out to God. God, I need truth. Show me truth. I'm all mixed up. I don't know which way to go. Give me truth. And I was desperate. God is so faithful. Didn't go very long at all. Till I had things seemingly dumped into my lap that I really didn't expect at all. And uh, found out of this Fountain of Life ministry where you could call in and listen to preaching. and Well, one of the foremost things in my mind was if I walk in the things that God is teaching me in, I'm going to be excommunicated from my people. And I don't want that. And I, somebody had just previously put a little thing in, of all places, the Lancaster Farming in the mailbox markets. Bon and Maidum. Ban and excommunication. Question mark. Call this number. Well, I was tempted to because it was very much foremost in my mind. And, but I didn't. The following Sunday, the preacher was preaching and mentioned this. He had also seen it in the Lancaster farming. And he just hoped nobody listened into it. Because uh, it would have probably not been good. Especially if it's if it had some German words with it. It must have been targeting, targeting German-speaking people. But... Uh, when I got this brochure of Fountain of Life Ministries, I saw the same thing. I could listen into the, that same message that was just bugging me. I wanted to know the truth. Can I walk in these things? Can I walk in the truth as I see it and be excommunicated and still be right with God? It seemed impossible. But that's the first message I listened to. And I, I didn't have my Bible with me right at the time, but I had been immersing myself in the word and felt like if there's false teaching here as badly as it's made out to be I think I should be able to catch it so I'm going to go to the phone shanty and I'm going to listen to this message and if there's anything that sounds like it's contrary to scripture I'm going to just close that door Right away. And that's where it started, in a large way. Listening into godly preaching, alive preaching, preaching of the word. And I was spellbound. This was just weeks after I had desperately prayed for truth. And I had no idea of going this way to find it. But when this thing came in the mail, I. I immediately thought, well, I didn't ask for this thing, but I've been praying for truth. I've been praying for direction. I've been praying for guidance. And here this thing comes. I don't want to just throw it away. So I praise God. When we pray for truth, he will give it to us. And the truth does set free. 
Hallelujah. The Christian life starts when a person realizes the truth of this verse, of the heart being deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He realizes that for himself and cries out to the Savior. Christ's blood is applied and our hearts are made new. But it's not a once and done thing when we come to Christ and experience new life. It's not a once and done thing. Our heart is made better. But it's a walk of life. It's a continual pursuit to better our hearts. To realize that my heart is needing help. Every day as we get up and as we go through life, my heart needs help. I need to be in the Word. I need to be in the brotherhood. I need to have brothers, sisters speaking into my life. My heart needs to be bettered. To have that approach before God, God better my heart today. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. If we can't mourn, we can't be comforted. Comforting comes after mourning and being willing to face the truth. And when we face truth, it might hurt. They say truth is what hurts. Does that mean we should stay away from it? Stay away from truth because it hurts. Many people take that approach. That's when we become willing and desperate to find truth for our hearts that we can be comforted when we find what I'm seeing is just not pretty just not pretty at all and we mourn about it and God comes and comforts us the fool must first get real before he can mourn for his sinfulness we read about the fool a couple of times and one is Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. Well, you've, you've seen it. You throw in the sticks, you start the fire, and it starts crackling and popping, and away it goes. It's like the crackling, like the laughter of a fool. The Bible is compared to water. How do you get the fool quiet? Give him the water of the word. Water him down. Put his fire out. Put his crackling laughter out. And he needs to start mourning. Then he can be comforted. Sorrow is better than laughter. It is better to go to the house of mourning, it says, than to the house of feasting. I've seen people that they don't want to talk about death. Death of a relative, of a, of a family member, acquaintance, they don't want to talk about it. And they're not going to go to a funeral. They're going to stay away from it. They'd rather go to a party any day than a funeral. And they're, they're going to make it happen. They're not going to go to a funeral. And uh, those same people, there's things down inside that never get taken care of. There's never a genuine mourning, never a grief over a loss of a loved one in a genuine way. And um, sometimes I wonder when I hear someone passed on and the statement is that they're going to have a time of celebration 
They call it a time of celebration of life. Not celebration of passing, but celebrating the life of such and such a person. Um, not here to judge on that, but uh, sometimes I wonder, is it better to just call it a funeral and consider it a time of grief and walk through it with those that are grieving, weep with those that weep? More souls are saved by sorrow than laughter. Countless millions are laughing their way to hell. Countless others are on their way to heaven after having found genuine sorrow and repentance. Excessive laughter is often the result of unresolved matters in one's life. Am I saying this morning that you should be going through life sorrowful and mourning all the time? Like I said, there's a place that this fits. And there's a place that maybe it doesn't. Um, We need to be careful to allow Scripture to fit where it fits and where God would have it be in our life. Sometimes when we go through difficulties or see others, others go through difficulties, we're tempted to just have this attitude of, oh, get over it. You know, the sun's shining. It's springtime. Let's go. Let's just live life and be happy. That's when someone's in heaviness and in sorrow, that's usually not the best way to approach it. I'd rather come and sit beside the person, sympathize, mourn with them. He that blesses his friend with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it shall be counted a curse to him. Who wants to get up in the morning and hear somebody with a loud voice right outside the window just blessing you? Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. Is that our goal in life, to better the heart? To take that old heart of ours and make it better? Verse 5. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Now, who likes to hear rebukes? Most of us don't. Maybe we think we do. We're living an idea of, oh, if somebody rebukes me, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll appreciate it and I'll get bettered by it. But when it really comes down to it, it often doesn't come from where we think it would be easy to accept And it often doesn't come in the way that we think it would be easy to accept. But is our goal for our heart to be bettered? If it is, those rebukes can be a lot easier to take. He wants to listen to the song of fools. How is that going to better your heart? All the fool wants to sing about is rebellion Self, sin, listen to that. 
There's no bettering of your heart in that. Do we go through life? We should go through life. We need to go through life looking for our heart to be bettered. Life is about investing. Psalm 126, 5 and 6. I'll just turn there and read that. I think it's very fitting here. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. This is often used in the context of evangelism, and it's right to use it in that way, but it can be used just personally with ourselves before God. As we go forth in life, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed. There's little seeds of things that God gives to better our hearts. Little nuggets of truth to steer us the right way. Those rebukes that come our way, however small the seed is. If we go forth taking those things, whenever we have the opportunity to take a seed and make that thing grow, Rather than just living it up, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, finally, number three, the goal of final victory. I'd like to talk a bit about different views on. What is the best part of life? I'll share this a little bit. When I was 18 years old, I was in uh, catechism and uh, planning to become a member of the church and be baptized. My bishop, which uh, he mended well, but he made this comment. You're in your best time of life. Here I was, 18 years old. A hurting young man. Just feeling like things weren't so great. Maybe on the outside they were. Sure, I was strong. Sure, I could carry on and and get things done. But I felt like life was lacking a lot of things. And I really was hoping they would get better as time goes on. And, you know, you have this idea of growing up and getting married and life becoming better here I was at 18 and life was supposed to be as good as it gets well if you're past that point of as good as it gets it can only get worse so what's what's our view on uh, life is it that we use phrases like the prime of life or like 
getting over the hump. I'm over the hill. If you're over the top of the hill, it's all downhill. It's all going to get worse from here. It's kind of a depressing outlook. But in the in the um, many of the Eastern cultures, age is reverenced and experience, wisdom is lifted up and seen as very valuable and something to be longed for where uh, the elderly are reverenced and respected not perfectly the world's the world but more so than in our western culture and uh, here we tend to think that you know the best of life is its strength and its um, beauty and vitality those sorts of things feeling good well you get to 20s, 30s, 40s and things are going pretty good you've got what's best right and now it goes downhill and you can't do anything about it you're just you're just going to lose out on those things I just mentioned you're not always going to keep that same strength and the same uh, the same looks and uh, vitality therefore you have a very negative view of getting older and you know people talk about oh how hard it was to hit that 30 mark 40 50 oh not even wanting to admit our age it can be a, a rather discouraging outlook on life you know if, if our goal in life is just to be as youthful and as strong as we can be what about what does the Bible say is the principal thing in Proverbs wisdom is the principal thing well, wisdom is never going to get, get taken away from you by something you can't control. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge, understanding, experience. Those things, they don't go away with age. But they increase. Back to verse 1. The last part of verse 1. I need to re- find my uh, spot here again. Ecclesiastes 7. The day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Again, there's a place that this fits. It doesn't fit for those that don't know the Lord. That for sure we know. Those that have to face a Christless eternity and have no opportunity anymore to turn it around, to change that. There's nothing better about the day of death in such a case. But to those that have fought the good fight of faith, those that have known the Lord and walked with Him, and uh, like the Apostle Paul, 
It is far better to be with Christ was his testimony. What's the best part of a race? It's crossing that finish line. As long as you're not there at the finish line, you don't you don't know how you're going to win. You don't know how it's going to go. But once you cross the finish line, pass from this life to the next, and your fate is sealed in Christ, what a glorious day that will be. That's where this fits, the day of death being better than the day of one's birth. As we fight the good fight of faith through life, we must have goals before us. And this, this goal, the goal of final victory, is very important. To have our eyes heavenward. And considering the day of our death, it will strengthen us. It will give us strength. It will give us courage. It will give us that goal that we need to carry us through. Now the fool will have reason to say, like in verse 10, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? He'll have reason to ask that because the former days were better. A fool just lives life to the help. He lives it up. He goes to the parties and parties it away. And before you know, his life is in shambles. His uh, best days are destroyed. The foolish live for the present. The wise invest in the future. We're getting to the time of year that Pretty soon we're going to need a lot of seeds to get out and plant our gardens, plant our fields. We need a lot of seeds to do that. And uh, we know that it's not going to work to just eat all our seeds up. Maybe we haven't planned ahead and, and our store is getting pretty small. Of course, we live in the day that we do. We can just uh, we can run out. We can go and get more. It's usually pretty easy. There were times that it wasn't so. You had to save last year's crop. You had to save it. So you had enough to plant in the springtime. And you knew better than to eat that last little bit. You're going to have to save that for seed. Well, the fool, he's not thinking about the future. He's just living it up. And he gets hungry and he sees that. He eats it up. The fool makes... When he sees a mustard seed, he makes mustard. How much mustard will a mustard seed make? Very, very little. I don't know how much. I think a mustard seed is pretty small. I'm not sure how small. It'll make very, very little mustard seed. The wise will plant that seed, something great, something that's multiplied many, many times will come forth from that. That's a picture of how we live life. Are we going to just live it up on the spot? Or do we take what God gives us and plant it and increase it and live for the future? Willing to leave the best for last. 
The Christian life is one of anticipating the future. If you want to know what it's like to anticipate the future, probably should talk to Ken Miller. Just uh, Brother Ken down in Virginia got out of, at least I understand he did, he was going to, uh, got out of prison and was able to go back to his family after many, many months in prison. And just, just uh, it's hard to imagine how much you would anticipate such a time to be able to get out of prison, be reunited with your family. And that seems like a great thing and a, and a big thing. But do we realize how much bigger all there in Christ, how much bigger of a thing that we are waiting for to be united with Christ in the end when Christ comes back to receive his own, to be united with him. It will be many hundredfolds better than what Ken just experienced. The Christian life is one of anticipating the future. The worldling's life is often one of wishing for the past. All of hell wishes for the past. All of heaven glories in the present and anticipates all eternity. Now we, even in this life, just being able to live with godly goals, have such a so much more of a rich life than if we just meander through life and just kind of let things fall where they will and, and try to live it up and it always seems to elude us that uh, fun that we're trying to get out of life. I have one more illustration of what it's like to live by God's goals. God's order. When we live by God's order, it's going to be God's order of life, having the right goals, having perspectives that are from the Lord, that we're able to have that abundant life that God has designed and desires for all of us. Good, better, best. Never let it rest. Till the good is better and the better is best. The best is coming at the end. Brothers, sisters, keep on fighting the good fight of faith. It only gets better. May God add his blessings.